Hello all and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown, your weekly look at the IT News of the Week. I'm your host, Rich Droffolino. I'm an editor with Gestalt IT. Joining me from across this great land of ours is the one, the only, the networking nerd himself, Tom Hollingsworth. Tom, welcome to the show. Hello, Rich. It's a pleasure to be here on a toasty July afternoon-ish thing. Yes, it is It is balmy in all of our environments, uh, depending on where you are in the world. It may also be as well. So hope you are staying cool, or at least comfortable. Uh, we're going to get started with a little something we like to call news or not. This is where there's just too much news breaking all the time in IT. We don't have time to get into a full-length discussion, but I want to talk about it with Tom just for a second, get his take on if it is newsy or in fact not. Tom, are you ready to go? Yeah, let's do it. All right, first up here, interesting news from AWS. Uh, the uh, AWS's hybrid cloud outpost has been available for most of 2020. It launched, I think, in back in January. But AWS uh, has just announced that its relational database service for outpost has hit general availability. This provides a fairly unique capability of offering a vendor-managed database as a service that can run inside a customer's data center. Previously, basically, Oracle was the only other player in this market with their Exadata Cloud at customer very uh, a great name from them as well. AWS RDS for Outpost supports MySQL and PostgreSQL at launch. Uh, it sounds like they're going to add others, but they wanted to stick with just the open source stuff, I guess, to start out with. AWS handles all the provisioning, patching, and backups. Interestingly, there's a couple qualifications on the service. All backups and restore options are done through an AWS availability zone. There's no option to keep all data local right now. Uh, maybe that might cause some compliance issues. Uh, and then you can also can't manage acro data across multiple zones. Again, feels like something that's just uh, a, a you know an update uh, coming later. But Tom, I need your your take here. News or not? I'm torn on this one because I don't really think that it's newsworthy. Okay, mm -hmm. Amazon has another thing that they can add to Outpost. <laughs> I think what's news, though, is, well, there's a finger in between these three that they just showed to Larry <laughs> Ellison. And I think that that's the newsy part is, you know, because Ellison's been running around at Oracle Open World and everywhere else basically saying, oh, well, Amazon's huge and everything, but they still rely on Oracle and we're still an important part of their business model. And uh, I, I'm pretty sure now that Jeff Bezos, you know, has more money than anybody else on the planet. He's just like, you know what? Screw you, Larry. I'm going to destroy you. I, I've always had this theory that uh, with like Facebook, whenever they launch like a new service that's not Instagram, WhatsApp, or Facebook, and that it was or like a new feature, and it's never the point is for that to be wildly successful. It's just to like disrupt a, a potential competitor enough that they yeah. f that they can fail enough, and that's what this f exactly feels like as well. Yeah, Amazon's one of those companies like Google that is willing to lose money to drive their competitors out of business, even if they never intend on that service actually being something useful. Speaking of something useful, the Linux distro company SUSE announced it plans to acquire Rancher Labs. I raised some eyebrows when I saw this come across my feed this morning. Terms of the deal were not disclosed, but they tell uh, sources tell CNBC that was around $600, $700 million. It seemed like a big deal to me. Uh, I'm Having no idea of what Rancher Labs is worth, it seemed like a big deal. Uh, Rancher is, of course, a big name in the Kubernetes deployment space and seemingly pairs well with SUSE's enterprise Linux services aspirations. Not surprising to see a well-regarded Kubernetes provider get bought uh, up here. I don't think this is going to be the last one that we'll see in 2020, but news or not, I see Suse being involved in it. So this is what's something that's funny because a lot of people have, have brought this up. Sousa, first of all, they're still in business. <laughs> Second of all, they, they have enough money to buy people. And I've got one word for you, Novell. That is the big thing. And for those of you who don't know, Novell Netware's assets were bought out by Sousa many years ago. Mm -hmm. um, the, the, 
essentially what you've got left is is um, you know a small sleeping Linux giant. So when when people look at Linux, you really only there's two flavors: either you're running your own or you're running Red Hat, and it's like Kleenex and and uh, Oreos and and all the other things. The the name of the commercial Linux distribution, no matter what it's made by, is Red Hat. And I think Suze is a little mad about that because they've been doing a lot of great stuff over the years. They've been making their systems very usable, very functional. This ultimately is a good thing because now it means that Suze can get into the container space. They can really start leveraging those platforms. And, and let's face it, Rancher was somebody in need of some guidance, some help on from on high. Mm -hmm. And I think that this gives them the, the the chops that they need to kind of go into these large enterprise deployments. And when you know people are like, well, I don't I don't know why I should listen to you because you're a tiny company. They can point over in the corner at the lizard going, mm-hmm, <laughs> not anymore. And interesting I also think it's interesting that uh I don't know how much this matters to anyone other than me, but you know, Red Hat getting bought up is no longer the, you know, a standalone concern, right? It's wrapped up in all the mm -hmm. IBM-ness that is IBM. Uh, at least, I, I know Suze is part of a, a, like a larger private equity or holding company or something like that at this point, but they, I think the perception is they're independent. I wonder if that uh, will impact any buying decisions. Again, now with, with uh, these container assets, well-regarded, certainly, uh, from Rancher, uh, see if that makes a difference for them. Next up here, uh, Zoom announced the launch of Zoom Hardware as a Service. We're getting very servicey this morning in partnership with hardware makers D10, Neat, Poly, and Yalink, which is my favorite of the names. This will provide a hardware teleconferencing package with a fixed monthly price and integrated support from Zoom. The company is offering Zoom phone hardware for voice calls and a pricier Zoom rooms tier uh, with hardware for integrated video conferencing. Zoom getting on on hardware OPEX money. News or not here, Tom? Uh, this is news because as much as we would like to believe that deep down inside that hardware doesn't matter anymore, um, I have some buildings that I'll sell you. Uh, <laughs> I know that my friends at VMware, they've done a lot of these Zoom rooms. And let's be fair, Zoom rooms compete directly against Cisco telepresence deployments. That's the market right there. They're, they're not competing against GoToMeeting. They're not competing against Microsoft Teams or whatever um this is a play to get that webex dollar and uh for those of you who don't know the person who founded zoom he was also a part of webex came over in the acquisition got upset left started his own company and well now he's contending so i think that this is them showing that they can integrate this whole package together um I am kind of curious to see who's going to buy this, though, considering the rumor mill that I've heard is that the commercial real estate market is about to head down pretty quickly because, well, let's face it, we ain't going to be working from an office anytime soon. Maybe they're trying to get uh, all that uh, telepresence equipment into uh, uh, people's homes and get uh, maybe some more sales that way. I, although this clearly has been, I, I would imagine, in the works for a little bit now. Um, uh, probably pre-pandemic, I would imagine, just probably accelerated given uh, given the pace of things as well. Yeah. Next up here, uh, India's Reliance Geo Platforms, which owns the largest telecom in India, they're a giant, giant conglomerate uh, in India, launched a new video conferencing service called GeoMeet. The service offers unlimited free calls at 720p quality, up to 100 meeting participants, and a no-call time limit. The company says GeoMeet uh, offers enterprise-grade host controls, including password protection on calls, waiting rooms to admit participants, and up to five device login support, looking at Uzoom, and screen sharing. 
Geomeet says all calls are encrypted, but did not specify if that's end-to-end, -end, being a little cagey about that. There are also currently no paid tiers for the service. This is kind of a move by Geo platforms of basically just offering a useful service for free for years and years on end, kind of the Google beta approach as well. Uh, Geomeet is available on Firefox and Chrome browsers with standalone apps for macOS, Windows, iOS, Android, and an Outlook plugin. Uh, some competition, uh, at least internationally, uh, in the teleconferencing space here. Tom, news or not? Yeah, congratulations. You've entered a very crowded market and will probably be out of business in six months. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm sorry. This is, this is as much excitement as I can muster about this because, well, let's see here. Um, you are now the sixth horse in a race where companies have been refining their technology for, I don't know, several years. I mean... The only way that you could have made a worse decision was to enter the cloud market. Although, let's be fair, you'd probably still be ahead of Oracle Cloud at this point. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, the, the only thing I will say is ordinarily that this wouldn't even make the news or not cut. It's it's the combination of their reach specifically in India where they don't even have to be particularly popular to still get tens of millions of users in terms of yeah. market share. So that, you know, that that may be the play uh, long term there as well. Yeah, it's, it's like a Chinese company. There's there's a thousand Chinese companies replicating things that we do here that you've never heard of because they're only popular in China and they still have a bigger install base than four out of the five largest you know, companies here because it's China. Yeah, it, the scale is just uh, something uh, we're not perhaps used to in the U.S. Uh, up next, a new feature in the Canary build of Chrome 86 called Intensive Wake-Up Throttling will automatically limit JavaScript timers in the browser, limiting them to one per minute in a page that's been hidden for more than five minutes. Websites often use these timers for their analytics, but they don't actually provide any benefit for the end user and can cause additional battery usage. Using a 2018 15-inch uh, MacBook Pro, Chromium researchers found that in a test with numerous background tabs, this throttling extended battery life by 28%, almost two hours, to 8.2 hours. However, in that same test, Safari still provided 9.3 hours of battery life. Uh, JavaScript uh, uh, destroying Chrome battery life. News or not here, Tom? I'm going to try to, to uh, express this in a meme, uh, the Drake meme specifically. <laughs> Protect users from being tracked. Better battery life so we can compete with Apple. <laughs> That's what it is. This has nothing to do with Google's altruism. And if anybody out there still believes that Google is an altruistic company, I have a bridge that I'll sell you really cheap. It's in Brooklyn. This is all about performance numbers. This is all about the fact that Chrome has been running JavaScript tabs in the background and absolutely destroying battery life. Notice that they're do they're taking this on themselves because they still don't want ad blockers on their platform, and they are they're trying to limit the bad parts of these ads and trackers and analytics without destroying the ability for their own to still run. Because I bet you Google Analytics hasn't needed to do this for a while. And now they're like, oh, my Lord, how could we possibly allow people to do this or, now or, that we don't? I imagine there's like a release like the day before this was rolled into the Canary Build of Chrome was the day they <laughs> disabled JavaScript timers in the background of Google Analytics. I, I, I like I, I would just love to see that. I'm, I don't know. If that's oh, yeah. The case. Do uh, as we say, not as we do. And finally, I wanted to finish off news and I with some terrifying security news. Last week, researchers at Positive Technologies disclosed a vulnerability uh, to F5 affecting big IP load balancers. This directory transversal bug is in the web-based management interface, which was combined with another bug that let anyone accessing the interface run shell commands. Basically, on unpatched systems, you can log in anywhere and run anything you want. 
uh, on something that touches a ton of enterprise traffic. Positive Technologies estimated about 8,000 big IP devices are vulnerable, and F5 released a patch on June 30th, so they're just closing this, obviously, after that. Uh, but Tom, from the non-networking nerds out there, uh, can you just real quick kind of break down how incredibly bad this is? Um, well, if you're familiar with CVE, which is the, the rating of how bad things are, 10. It got a 10. <laughs> and not only that, F5 released the patch before a long holiday weekend in the U.S. and expected people to have to go install it. Uh, Greg Farrow and Ethan Banks, did, or Greg Farrow and uh, Drew Connery Murray, did an excellent review of this in the last episode of their, their news break. Basically, here's the thing you had a bug that allowed people to log into your interface and do whatever the hell they wanted with your box. It's a box that typically sits on the internet to begin with. And you're like, well, we would never expose the management interface of our big IP boxes to the public internet because that's just stupid. Why don't you go check and see if that's actually the case? Because I promise you there's at least a handful of admins who are now working from home. They're like, I don't want to put the VPN up. That's just stupid. I know. I'll expose this to the internet and no one will know because they can't hack the interface. Again, a 10, that's 10. That means bad. That means get your butt out there and get these things patched. All right. Uh, and so uh, uh, thank you, Tom, for breaking that up. Uh, and we will have more news or not uh, uh, next week, of course, getting Tom's take on the news of the week. But I want to get into our first discussion story and an interesting uh, analysis of breached uh, password dumps that have kind of been out there from services like uh, Have I Been Pwned and stuff like that. Uh, this analysis was done by a Turkish computer engineering student, Ada Haksil, uh, and they found that the computer pa the password 123456 accounted for one out of every 142 passwords used and was the most common single password used for each of the last five years. Overall, the 10 most common passwords accounted for something like 6.6% of all passwords in th these combination of breach data sets. Uh, Hoxel used data sets of over 1 billion login credentials previously published, including 168 unique passwords. The analysis also found average password length was 9.48 characters and that only 12% of passwords used a special character. Tom, we all know passwords are horrible and that people are horrible about making them. Surprising to see, like, just, like, literally not even, like, that's, like, effectively not even having a password. Uh, being, accounting for... Uh, I mean, admittedly, less than one percent of passwords. Hey, we got we got there at least. Um, but did you feel like uh, password advice from hackers would still be relevant in 2020? Sadly, yes, because people will. Yeah, here's the thing: people are like, "Oh, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six is a super easy password." And there are also people like, "I don't want to use my thumbprint to authenticate to my phone. That's not secure. I don't want to use my face to authenticate to my phone. That's not secure." I promise you, your face and your thumb are a whole lot more secure than a password that you have to rotate around every few months or something like that. And I'm not going to break that down because we really don't have enough time to explain that. Here's the, the, the nutshell thing. How did they find out what these were? Oh, well, that's easy. They have a database of all the hacked passwords in the world that have I been pwned. Troy Hunt, way to go. If I have the hash value of something, I can figure out what hash collisions happen there. So here's what I do. I take one, two, three, four, five, six, I hash it. And if it matches the hash output that's in have I been pwned, that's how I know what the password is. If you have a hash value of a password and God forbid it wasn't salted yeah. or oh. obfuscated in some other way, you, you have a problem. You have a big problem because it's just a matter of time before those things get hacked. So yeah, 
um, anybody who's a fan of hackers from the 90s, eh, me, um, you know, <laughs> money, sex, love, God, one, two, three, four, five, six. These are all passwords you shouldn't use. The best password is a password that not even you know. So if this bothers you, go download a pass mode, password manager, key pass, last pass, one password, something. Auto-generate passwords, even use the one in Safari if you're a Mac user. Auto-generate your passwords, save them to your machine, and don't remember them. Make them strings of numbers that you can't remember, and you'll never have to worry about people hacking your password, even if they torture you by, I don't know, hooking a car battery up to your nether regions, because even you don't know it. And once every three months, you'll have to enter that into your Roku using the little remote, and that's going to stick. But it's worth it. Believe me, I yeah. live this life. It is worth it. I do wonder, though, like, I, I feel like until we figure out something that's better than a password, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, stuff that the FIDO Alliance is working on, whether it's biometric authentication or something like that, that we're like this story is going to be still relevant in 2030 as long as we're counting on people to keep using passwords and stuff like, cause it seems like we've, we've reached a scale where like, I'll see a story that says a hundred million passwords leaked, like an entire country's passwords and biometric data can be leaked. And I'm just like, eh, okay. Like I've seen that before. I'll see it again, you know, in a month um, that we're so numb to this by now that it, I don't think we can be shocked out of it at this point. Right. Yeah. At this point, I mean, it's, it's just kind of a thing. I expect my passwords to be breached at this point, but I'm also one of those weirdos that believes that nothing is truly secure. Uh, it's uh, uh, a, a beautiful dream that we can never actually realize. Uh, speaking of beautiful dreams, Alphabet's Loon started delivering internet service using high-altitude balloons to Kenya on Tuesday in a first-ever commercial deployment of the technology. The balloons hover about 12 miles above the Earth and will initially provide a 4G LTE network connection to roughly 31,000 square miles uh, in over central and western Kenya and the couple of Nairobi. Loon launched 35 balloons in recent months to test Tuesday's official launch, which is in collaboration with Telecom Kenya, Kenya's third largest mobile carrier. Uh, Tom, I, I, I'm, we've been hearing about Loon and, and what they're planning on doing here. We've seen them do some tests um, in terms of uh, disaster relief, you know, kind of quickly putting up uh, essentially cell sites that are floating around in the air uh, right now. First commercial deployment obviously is a huge step. As a networking and a, and a mobility nerd, you are the networking nerd. Is this something that we will see outside of developing areas? And I guess how crucial is it to get these 4G connections um, kind of without having to lay that uh, that extensive last mile infrastructure? I think it's very important for two reasons. One, these places in these developing areas, it's not really easy to trench and, and bury fiber. And you really don't have people to go out there and work on 4G towers all the time. Plus, I mean conspiracy theorists um if you're floating the, the lte tower up in the air it's less likely to get burned down by people who believe that 5g causes the covid but um realistically speaking you don't need this in non-developing countries because you've got people like elon musk who are going to be putting up starlink constellations everywhere this is for places that are just too remote too hard to deal with I like the idea. I don't ever think it's going to be commercially viable. I think that this is a stopgap to the point where they're going to encourage competition. They're going to get people to build out more infrastructure, whether it's aerial, um, you know, orbital, or just good old-fashioned trench fiber across some other developing region. Um, but I like the idea. I like that Google's thinking outside of the box. Honestly, give them five more years, and I fully expect that the new Cobra Commander is going to come out of Google because that's the level of technology we're talking about right now. It's interesting to me to see uh, one, like the idea of providing 
relatively fast internet access, uh, essentially without having to build any on the ground infrastructure. I, I mean, uh, don't get me wrong. Obviously, this, these these loon balloons need to connect to existing infrastructure. You just can't deploy them literally in the middle of nowhere. And not to say that Kenya is the middle of nowhere. I don't want to you know uh, minimize that. But it is supremely important. One, I think I, I agree with you. The commercial viability. It seems like this strikes at a weird time. Kind of one. Uh, it, right as we're starting to deploy 5G and also starting to actually see, hey, maybe this whole satellite Starlink, you know, we have a couple companies now uh, that are that are trying to do this whole, hey, we're going to blanket the earth with satellites and shoot down Internet on people. Uh, whether that's ever, you know, financially viable for, a, for you know, a developing economy, we will see. But I, I do think in terms of uh, encouraging investment in Internet, if you can if you can show the value of all of a sudden everyone uh, is able, you know, you're, you're able to quickly deploy over 31, you know, thousand square miles. It's not an insignificant amount of area, um, and and provide that to people at, at a relatively reasonable cost. I think, if nothing else, that justifies further investment on the ground, you know, to build out more traditional connectivity. Hmm. All right. Next up here, uh, speaking of untraditional connectivity, uh, which we weren't speaking of, but now we are. Uh, the decentralized computing company Definity announced its internet computer is now open for third-party developers to build serverless apps that do not need to run from the cloud. An example uh, app that they put together was something called CanCan that shares videos similar to TikTok. Uh, CanCan was built using less than a thousand lines of code using the Matoko programming language. It's a new language designed by Andreas Rosberg, the co-creator of WebAssembly. So just to show that this isn't you know, there, there are some bona fides kind of behind uh, uh, the programming language. Definity's internet computer is non-proprietary using blockchain-like functions. They're kind of burying the whole blockchain thing because I think I, there's blockchain fatigue with these kind of projects. Uh, but it's using blockchain-like functions to run cloud apps without the need for web servers, databases, or firewalls from the application perspective. We'll get into it. Developers can apply for access to the internet computer at Definity.org. Essentially, the internet computer uses a series of nodes in independent data centers, so there are servers, obviously, connected over Definity's ICP protocol. Each node is then assigned a data center ID with the internet computer running its own governance system and node operators receiving tokenized rewards for operations. So there is some sort of monetized, hey, this sounds kind of Ethereum-ish, uh, where and then where using the apps, you are required to send some sort of tokenized incentive, aka gas, aka ether, whatever you want to call it. I say all this to say, uh, Definity has gotten a lot of credit for not being a blockchain-y like blockchain startup. Uh, they seem to actually have a point to what they are doing. Uh, Tom, uh, decentralized serverless, let's put it that way. Is this ever going to be a thing or is this just a science fair project? Well, it's already more of a thing than Oracle Cloud, so <laughs> we'll go with that. Sorry, that's three in one episode. I feel like I'm, I'm like... Yeah, I'm trying. Uh, no, this I, I I don't I'm not sold on this. Um, I the idea of serverless is nebulous enough as it is, pun intended. Um, now you're going to try to build it on some kind of distributed blockchain tokenized reward system. Yeah, you lost me. <laughs> um, here's the thing: if there's anybody that can pull it off, they can. But I don't know that this is a thing that needs to be pulled off. I I, I think that. Rather than rather than incentivizing people to build serverless because, oh, look, we'll give you free fake money. Um, I think what they need to do is they need to hammer home the idea that you don't need infrastructure to do these things. That's a better solution in the long run, but because just putting blockchain in front of things doesn't solve problems. I, I can see from a developer perspective, right? If this is tied to 
uh, you know, because the whole the whole idea of serverless, I, I always hate that uh, functions as a service is not used and serverless is because that that to me is is, a, is so much more useful to think about what you're going to be doing with service, right? Where it's like, I just need it to do this one compute thing and deliver the result to me en masse for whatever my application actually uses and stuff like that. And for that, from a developer's perspective, if I can do that with less code, if I can do that and, you know, a distributed system can do that perhaps, you know, I can be closer to the edge of my compute and get that function either faster or with less latency or something like that. From a developer perspective, I definitely see theoretically that there might be a benefit to this i don't necessarily see the benefit of you know how they can possibly reward the data centers and stuff like that again uh, i'm not a blockchain expert i'm not a definity expert um so you know they clearly have had to have thought about this i would hope <laughs> you we say that with blockchain all the time and it turns out the answer is usually no uh, yeah. but i i at least see that there is a there is a customer who would theoretically be interested in this, which is a weird thing to say about a product that they want to sell. Um, but um, yeah, I don't, I, I, I am skeptical about the backend, especially when you're going up against some pretty big incumbents uh, when it comes to Lambda. And it's like, okay, maybe you do have an edge in latency or something like that. Are you going to have an edge in availability? Or are you going to have an edge in cost? Or you, you know, what, you know, you have to kind of win at everything to get people from turning away from the 800 pound gorilla in the room, and that's where I'm skeptical. Yeah, I. But interesting, and I, I think it speaks to the fact that they, uh, you know, have made some advancements. They're at least willing to open it up, admittedly, in a kind of a closed beta to actual developers, as opposed to, hey, look at our cool thing that we made for ourselves. And finally, here, last story I want to cover real quick here: uh, VMware closed in a deal to buy the HCI company Datrium in an undisclosed deal. Kind of big news here this week. VMware is positioning this as a way to quickly modernize their disaster recovery portfolio, with Datrium already supporting DR on VMware Cloud on AWS, providing incremental backups that are encrypted, deduped, and stored efficiently on AWS S3. In that instance, given that it's HCI background, it's unsurprising their DR pitch was around reducing complexity and reducing cost. Well, VM, VMware's existing uh, DR strategy or DR portfolio is more focused on performance. Uh, it also gives VMware uh, some interesting software-defined storage IP as uh, uh, Datrium's uh, DVX HCI solution supported disaggregating compute and storage nodes in uh, to a certain extent within their overall HCI infrastructure. Interesting to see VMware getting into a little bit of the storage asset side here, Tom. This is a huge pit win for the vSAN team. Mm -hmm. Um, Daytrims presented at Tech Field Day before. In fact, they presented in 2017, 2018, and 2019. If you go over there, you can check out some of the technology that they were working on. Here's what it means ultimately when you think about this. So Daytrims DR as a service essentially means I'm going to go buy assets somewhere in a cloud, whether it's Amazon or Azure or somewhere. And Datrim will then replicate my environment to there as a cold site. So this isn't a hot standby thing where it's like, you know, active, active or active failover. It's something happens in my data center, uh, crypto locker, tornado, um, I don't know, bubonic plague. I'm not counting anything out in 2020. Um, we shut that site down. We boot up the cloud. We run the cloud. We'll have to do some some creativeness with the DNS and all that other stuff. But this is way better than, hey, let's truck all of these hardware assets in here. Let's let's send a snowmobile to get all the data or something like that. Um, this gives them huge advantages for vSAN because now vSAN, which is their distributed 
SAN product, software SAN product now has DR capability. Well, a lot of people were using vSAN as like a poor man's DR anyway. It's like, okay, well, we'll just replicate this over to a node over there. And in the event that something goes wrong, that node can come up and running. Now it's more robust. It's actually something I would feel comfortable writing into a DR plan as opposed to, shh, don't tell the CEO that that's our <laughs> DR plan because I don't want to get fired. My DR plan um, is a new resume. Yeah, exactly. This is a good pickup for them. Uh, I'm First of all, I'm happy for the Daytream team because you, you can't hope for a better home to go to than VMware. Uh, I, 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 I have to admit, I have a lot of friends that work at VMware. Um, I have a lot of friends who have gone to work at VMware through acquisition. Um, and by and large, they say it's a great place to work. You don't have to worry about whether or not your unicorn startup valuation is going to expire tomorrow because suddenly a VC wants their money. This is going to allow Daytrium, the assets, the people from Daytrium to get in front of a lot more people and to be a lot more integrated. Um, and there's a lot of technologies that you use inside of VMware every day that you may not even realize that came via acquisition. So I think ultimately this is a good thing. And I actually can't wait to get VMware back in front of the tech field audience, talk about how they're integrating Daytrium together to figure out how they're going to build on this product line. It's interesting to me because having them present at uh, Tech Field Day uh, a bunch, uh, you know, I, I kind of gotten, I've, I've seen a lot of Datrium. Uh, and so I was familiar with them. And it's interesting to see that the, at least what VMware is saying is the main reason that the acquisition is for that DR, you know, uh, uh, specific scenario and IP. Solid stuff. In general, I would say that's not the thing that I, when, when you're hearing from Datrium, that they were necessarily selling. They were very much, at least initially, uh, positioning themselves as a dedicated HCI company. So it's it's interesting in the the overall HCI landscape, where Daydream had a very novel approach uh, to what they were doing. Like I said, it was it was much more disaggregated HCI. I know that kind of sounds like an oxymoron, but they, there was method to their madness. Um, and to see something like that, uh, and and to get acquired, and that not be the the headline reason. I think speaks a lot about maybe the maturity or where we are at in terms of, you know, kind of, uh, uh, you know, as opposed to three, four years ago where it seemed like HCI was eating everything. Uh, seems like we have the incumbents and things have slowed down and people know whether they want HCI or not. And, you know, uh, maybe that market is, is not looking for uh, innovators, perhaps. Yeah, I think that this is this is admitting that the product has reached maturity and it's ready to be integrated into a larger group. Yeah, and, we, and we've seen a number of acquisitions to kind of to play along with that as well. Uh, so that just about brings us to the end of the Gestalt IT Rundown. Thank you so much for joining us. Hope you enjoyed and found the show uh, informative. Tom, where can people find more of your great stuff if they're so inclined? Well, as always, head over to gestaltit.com. I've been doing a lot of writing. In fact, there is a new episode of Conversations publishing tomorrow. Uh, I'm going to talk about end-to-end -end encryption and see if I can make every watch list for the U.S. government. <laughs> Stay tuned. It'll be exciting. Here's hoping. Uh, you can find my stuff on Gestalt IT as well. And remember to like and subscribe uh, to the Gestalt IT, like this video and subscribe to the Gestalt IT YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Gestalt IT videos. We have stuff coming out every single week. We have conversations. We have videos from Checksum. We have this show uh, and, so, and lots of other great stuff, podcasts going up there every single week. So make sure you check that out. Lots of great content coming your way. Until the next time we meet, uh, Wednesday at 12.30 p.m. Eastern time, we will see you for another Gestalt IT rundown. Until that time. For myself, for Tom Hollingsworth, for all of us here at the Gestalt IT family, here's wishing you and yours to have a super sparkly day. <laughs>